0: You may be seated. And as you're turning to Genesis 1, I just want to give you a special invite to come back tonight for our Juarez team presentation. I I don't know what God's providence is in the matters in El Paso, but uh, it was seven weeks ago that we flew into El Paso as a team of 15 sent from Redeemer and went to that Walmart where the shooting took place to gather some supplies for our English camp and then made our crossing over the border. Our missionaries Jamie and Jennifer Burke Kemper and Scott and Kathy Craig um, live there in, on the Juarez side and just ask for our prayers because of the tensions that are greater there. So come tonight to hear what the Lord is doing on the border besides what you hear in the news and come and pray for our missionaries who are serving the Lord's kingdom there. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, I have on your bulletin insert uh, the sections that we will be looking at. Uh, we're starting a new sermon series, and in this uh, sermon series, we're looking at the subject of marriage. I think in this calendar year, uh, Pastor Tony was telling me that we have about 10, uh, marriage, 10 weddings on the books for in this uh, building, gathering together with the people of the church to celebrate marriage. There's a lot of premarital counseling going on. There's a lot of marriage counseling going on. There's a lot of counseling after divorce going on. There's things that related to marriage that we need to be talking about and we need to be grounded in from God's Word. The book of Genesis means beginnings. And in this section, we're looking at the beginning of the human race, Adam and Eve, the first two Uh, that God had created. And then we're looking at the end of chapter 1, which is the prologue of God's creation, saying how He created mankind, and He created them male and female. And then we get into chapter 2, it flushes out the details. It's not a second creation account. It's simply giving us more detail of how God went about creating man and woman and how He had ordained marriage to be a special covenant. And so, follow along as I read Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and then Genesis two twenty through 25. This is the holy, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, we thank you for your word that has been given to us, this roadmap for living in the life, in the world that You created. Lord, we know that You could have made a world and put us in it and left us to ourselves to figure things out, but in Your grace, You have given us Your Word. We thank You that it reveals to us what we are to believe about You and what duty You require of us. Lord, we thank You for the message of grace that we read from cover to cover of You sending Your Son to be the Savior of Your people, and for You, working and perfecting a people to bring them to glory. Lord, we thank You for this grand drama of redemption being played out on the pages of Scripture, and we thank You for this first chapter or two of what You have been doing in the world. And Lord, we thank You for how it is so applicable to today and how it is so necessary for us to understand. Lord, we pray that You would be glorified in our lives, in our singleness, in our marriage, in every state, in every condition that we find ourselves. We pray for Your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I want to set the stage a little bit for a marriage series. This series I'm calling Gospel Foundations for Marriage, and this being the first foundation block, God's design for marriage. But gospel foundations for marriage are found throughout of Scripture. This happens to be the building block on which all the others that we will read are built on. It's a topical textual series in which I'm going to stick with one text and see what that text says about the topic at hand marriage. And then we're going to draw in some other passages to flesh out what is God's Word on marriage. And as we come to this important subject, I realize that within our congregation, there are singles who are young, singles who are old, there's widowed, there's divorced. Whether you hope to be married or God has gifted you with singleness for Christ's service, you need to still know the gospel foundations for marriage. If you're contemplating marriage, if you're engaged, if you're a newlywed, If you've been married 20, 30, 50 years, you still need to know God's gospel foundations for marriage. If you've had a failed marriage, a second marriage, a third marriage, maybe you have a blended family or your children are going through divorce, you need to know gospel foundations for marriage. Especially in today's environment, in our culture today, there's so much false teaching, twisted thinking about what constitutes marriage, about what's good for marriage, about whether we should even get married or not. And in marriage, there's anger and there's abuse. There's pornography and adultery. There's homosexuality and living together before or instead of ever getting married. In fact, on June 26, 2015, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that there's a fundamental right to marry is guaranteed to same-sex couples by both Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. That's the reality of the world we live in, and we need to know what God's Word says. Statistics say that almost 50% of all marriages are going to end in divorce or separation. Every 13 seconds, there is one divorce in America. Play that out. That equates to 277 divorces per hour. 6,646 divorces per day, 46,523 divorces per week, 2,419,196 divorces per year. In fact, in the time that it takes for a typical couple to take their wedding vows, nine divorces take place. Does that just boggle our minds? Does that grieve our hearts? How can we prepare? How can we have a gospel foundation for marriage? I'm going to refer back to this verse on a number of occasions over the next five sermons or so. Hebrews 13, verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. I want us to have, whether you're in marriage or before marriage or never going to be married, an honoring of marriage, because that's what God calls Christians to do, to honor marriage. According to the Pew Research study, most Americans believe that it's important for two people to legally marry if they plan to spend the rest of their lives together as a couple. The research bears out that about 47% of adults say that this is very important, and an additional 21% that say that this is about is somewhat important. Only 3 in 10 say that this is not too important or not at all important. So, the general American population still has something to say about marriage and thinks that it may be valuable. Young, old, married, divorced, widowed, it doesn't matter. If you're a Christian, you need to know the gospel foundations for marriage. You need to know what Bible, the Bible says about marriage. Many of you know Brenda, who's been single all of her life. And Brenda gets in more opportunities for conversations about marriage, about parenting with her coworkers, with her neighbors, with just friends. And they keep approaching her for her advice and her answers. In fact, last semester she took the marriage and family counseling class so that she'd have some answers to give. I don't care whether you're single, married, divorced, whatever – we just need to understand what is God's gospel foundations for marriage. Today, God's design for marriage. And this is from the very beginning. God has some des- the designer's specifications for marriage, the designer's intentions for marriage, and then the designer's procedures for marriage. And I want to draw this out of both Genesis 1 and 2 for us today. Do you know my first wedding sermon it was 22 years ago? And it was with the couple sitting right over here, my sister Alyssa and her husband Matt. And in that sermon, I preached some of God's simple math from this very passage, that one plus one equals one. And to kind of tease that out a little bit, and my sister did remember that uh, sermon, and not all of its details, I'm sure, but at least the concept. From the beginning of creation, we see that God intends that marriage would be one man plus one woman to be one union. And so, when God made Adam and Eve in Genesis one twenty six, we see that He called for them to be made in His image and likeness. God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, over the livestock and everything in the earth. So, God's favor upon mankind was that they were going to be His vice regents. They were going to rule in His place over all that God had created. Verse 27, God created man after His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And so, we see mankind is created. Male and female are created. And then in Genesis 2, we get a little more of how that took place. I remember this story that story that all the animals are coming to Adam. God's bringing them and He's giving them names and giving them names, but there wasn't, as Scripture says, a helper fit for him. So, Adam's alone. He needs a helper. This points more to Adam's need for a helper than some dignity that we might assign somebody who is just a helper. In fact, God elevates the dignity of that role of helper by Himself taking that name on. He is, as Scripture says, Israel's helper. He will be our help and our salvation. And so, as we see all these animals brought and there's not a suitable one, God took man, which He formed from the dust of the earth, caused a deep sleep to come upon Him and took a rib out of him. And from that rib created Eve. Now, He could have just gathered up another pile of dust, and he could have made another separate being out of the same material, breathed the breath of life, put his spirit, and there we would have two. But I think embedded into the way that Eve came into being is what God's design for marriage was, that he took this rib from Adam, so one into two. Now, he did say, Two would become one. As He got to the end of, well, look at the introduction in verse 23. Um, before that, He made this woman and brought her to the man, and the man said, um, my Hebrew professor says, there's, there's uh, probably a better translation of this, hubba hubba or wowzers or something like that. This is last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh because she will be called woman, because she was taken out of man. So, this is my very flesh. This is my my very flesh and bone, and this is the connectedness that God intends. And therefore, He says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. From one, God takes a rib and creates two. And these two, He has intended in marriage to come together and become one. It's simple math. That was the design, the designer's specification. Matthew Henry, in describing a little bit of why it was a rib that God took, speculates, The woman was made out of a rib of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved." I can go with that interpretation, I think. Let's look at the designer's intentions for marriage, and as we said in Genesis 1, when he created in his image and likeness male and female, he created them with a special design and intention. They were to keep the garden, they were to work, and work was not going to be troublesome or toilsome. It was going to be pleasant. And they were going to have dominion over every created animal and thing. And so, they would rule in God's place on the earth. God's intention in bringing them together was also to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. The intention for marriage is to bring forth children. In fact, uh, Westminster Confession chapter 24 says that marriage was ordained for the mutual help of the husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, and of the church with a holy seed, and for the preventing of uncleanness. This joining together, this union that God has blessed is to be a covenant bond. Now, it's not spelled out exactly, and the term is not used in Genesis 2, the word covenant, but As we see this verse being used in the New Testament by Jesus and by Paul, there's some more um, context that we get, a greater understanding. So, engraved in my wedding ring here is Mark 10, 9, which follows what Jesus says, quoting Genesis 2, therefore, let a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And this is significant because the joining together is done by God. It's not done by a pastor. It's not even done by those individuals. The joining together is something that God Himself does. And this joining is related in the New Testament use of the word for a husband and wife being yoked together. It would be the picture of two oxen. That's what we should have on the front of every uh, marriage uh, ceremony, right? Two oxen there being yoked together. We could do that for the pictures, right? To put up, no. The idea is that when you hook together two animals, they can do more together than apart. The key is that they have to both be pulling in the same direction, and they have to both be pulling with the same effort. If one's doing all the work and the other's not, what happens? It goes off to the side. And so, this yoking that later in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, is describing the joining together that Jesus says in Mark 10, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So the language of covenant is joining together. A, a covenant is a, is a bond of relationship. And it's just really specific and really clear in Malachi 2.14. This language is used when, it's a, when Malachi says, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So, the joining together of a husband and wife is here in in Malachi 2 described as a covenant. What does this mean? What is a covenant? A covenant is a bond in blood. A covenant is a permanent relationship. Uh, Based on the descriptions here of the designer's intentions, Dr. Jim Newheiser gives this definition of marriage. He says, "Marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman that has been established under God and before the community." Let me say that again. Marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman that's been established under God and before the community. Uh, This is lifelong. This is not just short-term, and it's more than a contract. A covenant is even a weightier matter, and it involves a relationship. You can enter into a contract with somebody you have no relationship except for a financial relationship, but a married couple is not simply in a financial relationship. What's yours is mine, and what's mine is mine is sometimes how we figure it out, but it's not just about joining our finances together. It's joining everything together. So this is the intention that God has for marriage. Let's look at the procedures that He spells out in marriage, verse twenty-four of chapter two. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they should become one flesh. I like how Wayne Mack, in his book Strengthening Your Marriage, walks through what each of these phrases mean. This is procedures you have to leave, hold fast and be one flesh. Um, sometimes you've heard leave and cleave. I just get confused. By cleaving it always seems like you're chopping something in two. I don't want you to do that to your marriage. I want you to leave father and mother, hold fast to your spouse, and then be one flesh. So what does leave? What it doesn't mean. Leave doesn't by leave it doesn't mean to forsake your parents. It doesn't mean that you just write them off and abandon them. That, okay, you had your time with me, now I'm doing my own thing. In Exodus 20, we see honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. That honor command remains all the way until your dying days. In Ephesians 6:4, children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother is the time for children to both obey and to honor as you get into adulthood, as you leave father and mother, what that means is that you're forming an adult relationship now. Now, I've had that experience as an adult towards my parents when I was married. It's a whole other experience now that my oldest daughter just got married a little while ago. How do you form that adult relationship with your child who you've been able to, in the past, just simply say, this is the way it is? I'm the dad and that's new and different as they enter into this marriage. It's not about abandoning them or even moving away geographically. Um, Sometimes it's good to have a little distance between you and your uh, parents or your in-laws, but in most of Israel's wanderings and sojournings as nomadic people, you pretty much shared the same tent with your extended family. So, they weren't moving across country or to a different place. We can maintain this leaving, as the Bible commands us, without geographically or abandoning. So, what does it mean? Mac talks about having an adult relationship with your child. You're becoming a more of a coach and a mentor to them. And young people, you're seeing your parents not as somebody you depend on financially or for affection or for approval or for counsel, but you can go to them for assistance and help and coaching. Sometimes we need to leave our father and mother and begin this new marriage, this new relationship by leaving some bitterness and leaving some anger or bad attitudes, or unresolved conflict by practicing either forgiveness or covering over offenses from your past. Sometimes that can hold on to us. And leaving leads to holding fast. And this holding fast is about loving your spouse. And love is not primarily a feeling. In our culture today, people get married because they fall in love, right? Well, love is is primarily a commitment. Secondarily, the feeling should follow. And so, keeping that commitment is holding fast. It's a covenant, it's a vow that you're going to keep. It's being faithful to each other no matter what. When you speak those vows in sickness and health, for richer or for poorer, till death do us part. Sickness, poverty, pain, sorrow, bad times, disagreements, arguments, they're all going to come. But the commitment to hold fast has to override any of those tensions that would seek to divide you apart. Know and face your problems and seek God's help to resolve them rather than to run from them. My youth pastor used to say, when you have problems and you try and run away, you'll find it where you left it. And quite often, We think that the solution to the problems we have in life is just to get away from those influences and those people where it's actually God wants us to resolve those. So, what does it mean to become one flesh? Well, it means what is apparent on on the face value is that it's about the sexual union that God intends between a man and a woman. A man and a woman. In the confines of marriage... And I think that marriage, in marriage, sex is holy, good, and beautiful, but it needs to be in the marriage relationship. I don't think we do our young people a service by just keep scaring them about sex, but telling them to hold on for God's best and greatest gift to be opened at its time. It's kind of like that Christmas gift that needs to be opened at Christmas, Now, I said that in the first sermon, and somebody thought, oh, that means we can only have sex on Christmas, and that's not the application, okay? I'm going to get emails about that. God has intended that this oneness be more than sex, though, that it should permeate into all of our relationship, emotional intimacy, intimacy in our communication. We're sharing everything together. We're together as a team if you're one flesh and you poke here, it hurts you. Don't poke, it'll hurt you. Just that easy. But we need to foster this oneness. It doesn't always come natural, and it needs to be centered in our relationship with Christ. That union with Christ is what draws us more intimately close with one another. It's total intimacy, deep unity. As Jesus said, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So the specifications, one plus one equals two. And I got to say it, one man plus one woman equals one godly union. That God's intention is for them to be covenantly bonded for a lifelong relationship of companionship that will be established under God and before a community. And the way that we do that is leave our father and mother, hold fast to our spouse, and be one flesh together. I want you to look at your left hand and at your ring finger, please. Everybody inspect, married or unmarried, look at what's there. Take inventory of what's there. If there's nothing there, then you must know that you are loved, accepted, and valued if you are in Christ. If you're trusting in Him for the forgiveness of your sins and have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, you don't need anyone to complete you. You don't need anyone else to make you whole. You are complete in Christ And if you don't realize that and you start to go into relationships thinking that he will complete me or she will complete me, it's a disaster. I've seen it happen. Don't fall into that trap. If there's nothing there, first and foremost, realize you are complete in Christ. Maybe you can be looking for what ways in which God has given you and equipped you and for this season in your life, The singleness as an opportunity for service for Him. Special service, what is that special service you might step into today? Maybe you're looking at your hand and there's nothing there because you're a widow and you have now time on your hand. Maybe you can devote that time to prayer or to visiting or to mentoring some young people. For those who are desiring to become married, there's nothing there and you want so desperately for there to be something there, how are you becoming the man or woman of God that is strong and secure in your faith? And are you growing in your understanding of what a godly man looks like or a woman, what a godly husband or wife would be? And if you're a man, study to be a godly husband. Somebody who has those characteristics that we read in Scripture. And read what the Scripture says about what a godly wife looks like and find that, not what the culture says by looks, by money, by whatever. Women, do the same for yourselves. Grow in godliness and preparation. Okay, married couples, as you look at the condition of your ring, how is it looking? When I first uh, was married within a week or two I got a job working outside painting someone's house and we were scraping off the paint and sanding down the frames on the windows and this high grit sandpaper made gouges in my brand new wedding ring that I didn't even notice until I came home and my wife says what happened to your ring Now That only happened within a few weeks, but maybe some of you have deep gouges in your condition of your marriage, and things are kind of tough. Uh, Maybe you have sunk a lot of money into the jewelry on your hand, but you haven't invested a lot of time, a lot of thought, and a lot of uh, love into your relationship. Let's commit to changing that by God's grace. Maybe take advantage of the marriage uh, Sunday school class that's coming up the beginning of September. Some you need to polish a little bit and clean, and that would be a fine way to do that. Some of you might need to get your ring in for some serious work. Uh, Maybe you need a resizing of your ring, attention. You might be feeling stuck. You might be feeling hopeless. We have biblical counselors that specialize in helping with that. Talk to me, contact me through the week, and we'll get you the help that you need. Don't just forget about it. Some of you are missing a ring, but you're full of guilt or shame for decisions you made in the past or hurts that were done to you in that most vulnerable of relationships. Would you commit today to putting your past at the foot of the cross? Would you recognize and rest in the grace that is yours, the forgiveness that's full and free when we give our lives to Christ that the love of your Savior would cover over any guilt or past shame? God can do that and give you that peace. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that... uh, we don't have all the answers, and yet we live in a world where it seems like people are coming up with tips and tricks and ideas that seem to make some common sense to us, but Lord, we realize that they're just vapors, and they pass away, and that the real hope and the real firm foundation is found in Your Word. Lord, we thank You as our designer for making marriage what it is. And I pray that our thoughts and our understandings of marriage would be shaped by Your Word and not the world. And I pray that as our marriages begin to reflect more and more what Your design is, Lord, that Jesus would be on display, that the gospel would be made real to a watching world. As husbands lay down their lives for their wives, as Christ laid down his life for the church. And as wives submit to their husbands as unto the Lord, as the church submits to Christ her head. Lord, we thank you for this portrait of grace that you have painted. Sin has stained that portrait, but Jesus, our Savior, is redeeming and making things new. Lord, there's sin in our marriage, we confess it, we need your help, we pray for your forgiveness. We pray that you would strengthen us where we're weak, that you would encourage us where we're succeeding, and Lord, would we be an encouragement to one another as we seek to honor you in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Our hymn of response is hymn number 469. We'll stand and sing together verses 1 and 2 of How Sweet and Awesome is the Place.